Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there who are positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. My guest today is Allison Meyer. Allison is a Restorative Practices Coordinator for Jefferson County Public Schools in Colorado. She has partnered with over 64 schools in the Jeffco School District to provide restorative practices support through trainings, facilitation strategies, and systems analyses. Previously, Allison worked with Denver Public Schools in the same role. In our conversation, Allison discusses how restorative practices has recently gained momentum in challenging and replacing the traditional punitive discipline system most schools have historically adopted in addressing student behaviors. She highlights key important foundational conditions she has learned need to exist in order for restorative practices to work, as well as common pitfalls that often prevent it from really taking off in schools. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, Allison Meyer, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to hear that. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks for asking. Good to hear. Welcome to the Humble Badass Educators podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. This is only my second one, and I'm excited to have you in particular as my second guest. I'm a big time fan. I've listened to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That's a whole 47 minutes of your time. Um, Tell me about yourself. Sure. Um... Well, my name's Allison. I'm from originally from Chicago. Grew up outside the city in the suburbs. Um, and then, I don't know, I never really felt like I, I didn't love the suburbs. The suburbs of Chicago are like very homogenous. Um, and I feel like people who have differences really stand out. And I have always kind of been a person who likes to like march to my, my own drummer. And so, when most of my friends from high school were picking these like big state universities across the Midwest to go to college, for me, I just wanted to live in the city. So I went to DePaul University on the north side of Chicago, um, and the city just quickly became home, and I feel like that's where I really like found my place uh, and my people. Um, I taught high school history for, I always mess up this number of years, but I think for six years in Chicago, and then one year in Denver. Sorry about the dogs. The puppies really like Chicago. They do. Um, And then uh, I taught for one year in Denver um, at North High School, uh, and then kind of took a risk and left the classroom and didn't really know what I was gonna do next, but fell into restorative practices work, which has really ended up being in so many ways my calling. And since then, I've just worked in a couple different positions, supporting restorative practices implementation around the Denver metro area. What do you mean you fell into it? So when I was teaching at North High School, I would try to bring in different perspectives often, especially when teaching. You know, I'm white and most of my students were not. And so when teaching my students about their own history too, I always thought it was really important to elevate um, voices of people who looked like them. And I was so lucky in Denver, they made it so easy for me. This community organization, Padres y Jovenes Unidos, came and reached out and they had been doing this for years, I guess, with the history teachers at North High School. But they offered to come in and teach my students about the Chicano rights movement. So it was like a one day guest lecture kind of thing. Um, And for them, they used it as an opportunity to also recruit students. They were a grassroots community, or still are, a grassroots community organization um, focused on 
on equal rights, particularly in education for Latino students. And so they came in and guest taught a day in my classroom. And when I left teaching, I, like, I had no plan. I did not know what I was doing. I was working in a brewery uh, down the street from the school I had taught at and um, found out that in the fall, that same community organization had gone back in, found out that I wasn't teaching there anymore. And we're like, where is she? And then they offered me a position to lead this partnership that they had with Denver Public Schools to implement high quality restorative practices. More about restorative practices, much more to come. Yes. But I want to ask um, the big question of this podcast, which is what makes you a badass and where does that intersect with humility? Um, that is such a good question. I think what makes me a badass, and I love saying that, it feels very affirming. <laughs> uh, but what makes me a badass, I think, is this idea of like, I like to carve my own path. Um, one of the most frustrating things, there are two things that always like really escalate me when people say them to me. One of them is when I'm shushed. I do not like being shushed. I think that might be because I'm a younger sister, but like something about being shushed really does not sit well with me. But the other one is when people say, but that's the way we've always done it. I, that is really triggering for me and I do that does not resonate with me like we should not just keep doing things because we've always done them that way and I think I also take a lot of pride in doing things differently um, and it's also where I find joy like there are so many reasons I became a teacher and a lot of them are rooted in wanting to serve communities and just loving kids and the perspective that they bring to the world but selfishly a lot of it was also if you're a teacher you can make sure every day is different um, and I think I, I like newness and change so I think that's probably what makes me a badass, is that I like carving my own path. I think what makes me humble is that when you do that, you often mess up. And so you get slapped in the face a lot with like how little you know when you decide to go that route. And so I love that that's a quality that you elevate. I was telling you this the other day that a couple of years ago we were interviewing a potential intern for my office. And she asked us the question, you know, at the end of her interview, just what qualities are you looking for in people? And that's what I told her I think is the most important quality in educators is humility. Um, for so many reasons, partly just because we none of us know anything. And I think, you know, to have that type of self-awareness to acknowledge that I don't actually know anything. Um, but also just to model learning. Like when we model that we know everything all the time, we can't model like what it's like to be curious and to learn. Um, so I think it's a series of mistakes that have made me <laughs> humble. That answer is really reaffirming of why I <laughs> connect with you so well. I feel like <laughs> you and I and many of those points are pretty much one and the same. Um, let's go back to restorative practices because this is what you've been doing for a while. This is where you have found a calling, so, so to speak. Yeah. Um, give a one minute elevator pitch. What is restorative practices for those people that don't know? Um, I love that you asked for the one minute elevator pitch and I just want to, I have a one word pitch because that's just how education works of like sometimes you only get one minute with people and so you got to be able to boil it down to one word. Yeah. So years ago my, a supervisor I had asked me to come up with a condensed definition because so many of the definitions out there are paragraphs long and I came back with one word and she was like a little bit longer <laughs> would actually be nice. But the one word is connection that I always use. Um, and the philosophy, because it is, it's, it's a mindset. It's not like a curriculum or a program or just like these five steps that you take. Um, but it's an entire mindset shift that is all based on the importance of human connection. And the idea being that if, if we are in connection with our community, if we are in connection with the world and the environment, then we are less likely to intentionally cause harm. And then we are more likely to feel connected and cared for and supported and be more likely to be kind and collaborate with folks. And then on the, on the back end, if I do cause harm, it's all about making sure how do we reconnect that person back to the community, um, which is really the antithesis of how our criminal justice system works. Um, we're like so often we isolate, like we even think about like cancel culture, um, we just cut people out when they aren't meeting the expectations that we think we have in a society. And instead it's about calling people back in. 
And I would be remiss to not mention that these ideas are not new. These ideas come from indigenous cultures from around the world. Um, and it's, it's, they just feel new, I think, for a lot of Western white cultures to think about things in terms of connection. Because it's different from how we operate. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many studies around like the different values that different cultures have. And I think one of the biggest, one of the kind of paradoxes that people will look for when they try to, you know, really dissect what a culture, what their values are, is whether they value the individual or whether they're like collectivist societies. Um, and most Western white cultures, usually on the spectrum of individualism to collectivism, are very high on the individualism side. Um, and you find a lot of indigenous cultures, um, lots of like Latin American cultures, um, tribal cultures in Africa. Um, there's a lot of uh, Asian cultures that it's much more on that idea of collectivism and that like we're only as strong as our society is and as each other are. Um, so it really lifts up that idea. So what does that look like in the schools right now? Um, you know, like this is uh, very much grounded, it seems like in some of these core beliefs and ideas, but if you were to describe to somebody what they might expect this to look and feel like inside of a school, what would you say? Yeah, there's a couple indicators that I'm always looking for. And the first one is that there is a strong priority on relationship building and that those are, it's really around like healthy, productive relationships. So, which I think is hard for people. A lot of people do not have a healthy understanding of what relationships can look like, if they're gonna be trusting relationships, relationships where we hold one another accountable. And so figuring out that balance of like, I love you and I care for you and I support you. And also I'm gonna tell you when what you're doing is negatively impacting the people around you or the way that you might be being perceived. So I think there's a high emphasis on that. I think around authority, um, there isn't an ask of this blind following of authority. It's, you know, there's a healthy challenging of authority. Um, educators are good at giving up control to young people and making sure that their voices are elevated and honored in their classrooms and the experiences that they have at school. Um, and I think there's a shared sense of responsibility where you know, if, if something goes wrong, it's not that we're looking for who to blame, it's that we're all collectively trying to figure out, like, how can we fix this? Um, what part did I play? Like, I might have played a part as well. And then also just in the way our structures are designed. Like, I think of the classroom where, you know, the classroom guidelines or rules are written on the, on the board and it's just a list of, like, don't do this, don't do that, versus the classroom where, like, they're written on a giant piece of poster paper in kids' handwriting, and they've all signed it because they came up with what this classroom looks like together. Um, so that's what it—that's what I look for when a school says they're restorative. Do you feel like this movement is sort of like picking up steam at this point in time? Do you feel like people are more apt to know about restorative practices than not, or do you feel like a, a shift in people um, at least becoming more educated about these practices? They're very trendy right now. Um, which is a blessing and a curse in education. I think what's great about that is there's momentum and interest. And I think a lot of educators who might not necessarily know what restorative practices are know that they should and want to learn more, which is amazing and in so many ways makes my job easier. That being said, it's also a curse in that um, things that are trendy in education just oftentimes like hit these peaks and then disappear and fizzle out. And a lot of that is because that people want so badly to say that we're a restorative practices school that they, they end up implementing without fidelity. And so it ends up leaving the sour taste in the mouths of educators and families and students who are like, I went to a school that said they did that and I did not have a positive experience. So I also worry about this just kind of over-marketing of restorative practices and people, people taking it on that don't really understand the massive paradigm shift that it actually takes to do it well. Let's let's talk about that yeah. now then. So what does it take to do restorative practice as well? What sort of understanding um, needs to happen? What underlying sort of structures or beliefs have to exist in order for there to have any hope of success for it? Yeah, it's 
It's a great question. There's this amazing book that I always love about restorative practices. It's called Circle Forward. And in it, Kay Pranis and Carolyn Bowles Watson um, talk about these seven core assumptions of what it means to be a restorative minded person. And again, this is what's so hard about restorative practices is because it's not a curriculum. It's not something you do, it's something you are. And I think that is like a very hard thing to wrap your head around. But they have a, these lists of these things that like, if you are restorative, this is what you believe. And I think one that I want to really lift up is just that the true self in every person is good, wise, and powerful. And so if you are restorative minded, it's that belief that people are inherently good. And another one that they add on to that is that like people want to be in good relationship with one another. Um, and I think, especially now is like, it's so easy to become disconnected from people when we only communicate through technology. Um, you know, when I can say terrible things to this person from behind my computer screen and never have to like face them or understand their perspective. Um, I think those are things that get lost and that it's really easy to stop believing that everyone is inherently good and everybody just wants to feel connected. Um, and so those are, those are some of those core values of restorative practices. And so when I think about what it takes, like it has to, we have to have educators who are willing to do a lot of internal work. And I think that is a really big ask. You know, if I'm, so many people go to their jobs every day and their job is like something that like it doesn't take that much of an emotional toll on them um and i think to be a good teacher in particular to be a restorative teacher you have to be willing to do some really deep introspective healing work and i think that is a really big ask and so as far as like what it takes at the school level it takes a leader who's going to model doing that being vulnerable talking about their flaws and what they're working on um, and doing that really openly with both staff and students. They're going to need to hire for those qualities because those are really hard qualities to coach into somebody. So looking for educators that, you know, you can teach an educator to structure a math lesson. So instead of hiring educators that are good math teachers, hiring educators who are going to be introspective and constantly learning about themselves and trying to figure out what it is that they're good at and what it is that they're not and where they need to ask for help. Um, so I think that's really important, that leadership element. Um, there has to be like a willingness to kind of buck the system a little bit because um, restorative practices, you know, our education system is very designed in this like white, very Western cultural idea of what education is and restorative practices are not. And so you are gonna have to be willing to give up some things that have that are that like this is the way it's always been because restorative practices doesn't just like fit in necessarily to that traditional education model um at the same time as that sounds so challenging i think there's also a really unique opportunity right now because um i think we're seeing a new emphasis on things like you know schools want to be trauma-informed you know they want to be sensitive to the fact that there are um, students and staff and families in their presence that have experienced trauma and they do not want to exacerbate that trauma. Um, and restorative practices is typically listed as the most trauma-informed way to approach discipline. Same with social emotional learning. Like I think there's a, a renewed interest in that schools should take that role in a kid's life and can take that role where we help teach some of those social emotional skills. And same thing, restorative practices are such a great medium to help do that. So I also think as much as that sounds like this really massive paradigm shift that would need to happen to make the conditions right for restorative practices, I think it's happening um, in pockets at least. So why now? Why, why hasn't this had more momentum previously? Like there's always been trauma. There's always been a need for us to be able to have, or to have a need to want to resolve things um, with ourselves and with other people and, and whatnot. So why is it so, um, what's the difference now than it was once before? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if we're just at a place right now where there's just a reckoning <laughs> happening. Like I think there's a racial reckoning happening in our country right now. And I wonder how much there's also just this reckoning around education happening too. Um, I talk to my parents about this sometimes just to hear their perspective on like what education systems have been like over the course of their lifetime. Um, and I think it was my mom who was telling me, 
you know, she's, she's remembered times where parents just wanted their kid to go to school and learn math. She's remembered the times where like parents, like, I don't want to have the sex ed conversation with my students. So like, please have that with them. So I don't have to. Um, and I wonder a little bit if right now, like the impact that technology and particularly social media is having on people, we have this increased, um, like communities want schools help in how to address some of these things. Um, every summer i notice this more and more every summer i get more behavioral calls um that i think is really interesting like before like 10 years ago i can't imagine like schools getting calls about like behaviors that are happening over the summer and being expected to respond to them um but with social media and like the fluidity of like when we're at school and when we're not and i think you know students sometimes do things on social media that impact all of their classmates and even though it's July, it doesn't mean that the school just gets to say, like, not our problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it still had this really strong impact on the community. So I wonder if that kind of, like, fluidity and, like, blurring of boundaries between home and school and, um, like, all the different ways that we exist in the world is part of it. I think, I think there's also just, like, a renewed, I think especially right, right now, like, knowing when we're recording this and, August of 2020 that there's also just a increased awareness right now of understanding our biases and um, the impact that you know 400 years of oppression in this country have had more than 400 years of oppression in this country have had on um, folks of color in this country so I also restorative practices is also seen as like one of many tools that could be used to address equity issues in schools and so wondering if maybe that's why part of this interest is peaking. But part of me hopes that a lot of it is just grounded in the fact that we're maybe accepting that the old way never really worked with changing behavior. Um, I, so I kind of hope that some of it is also like, hey, maybe when I suspend this kid, it doesn't actually change their behavior. Say more about the bias piece of things. Like, how does that play a role? Do you feel in student discipline currently within our current system, and and in like controversial or like adversely in in the restorative practice world? Yeah. So, I always when I train people around bias, I always just say, if you have a brain, you have bias. So, like, bias impacts what you do constantly. It's just the way our our brains make sense of the world. Like, so often. We have to jump to conclusions like is this situation I'm in safe or unsafe um, is this person someone I can trust or not trust um, and so bias is like this really normal thing that we have but what complicates it is when we think about all of the different like inputs we're getting around like who we should trust and who we shouldn't who is safe and who is not um, who is like me and who is not like me um, and so I think a lot of times in discipline I see it take so many different roles it can be as simple as like that kid really frustrated me yesterday and so today i'm almost looking for them to frustrate me again um i'm sure you've experienced this before but so often like the educators who receive students in the office who have like been and gotten trouble you'll hear you'll ask them like what happened and they're like she only sees it when i'm doing it and sometimes they're right because like yeah it's like they actually do because they're almost looking, and it's, it's totally natural, but like that teacher was almost looking for you to mess up because you messed up yesterday and sometimes you mess up. Um, I used to do that when I was teaching. I would catch myself doing it when I was modern, monitoring students when they were taking an exam. Like you only ever look at the kid who once you saw their eyes wander. All those other kids could be cheating, but I'm looking at the one kid who last time I gave a test, their eyes wandered. So mm-hmm. it's like I'm almost like looking for him to mess up. So I think bias can take like, like that role I always, um, I have two older brothers and both were very different students, but the one that was closer in age to me, um, people usually, like teachers realized that he was my older brother and he was more of a troublemaker. So I just remember on the first day of school, I would say my first and last name and they'd be like, uh, are you related to Mike? Like, yes. And they would shake their heads like, oh no. Um, so like we see a lot of that bias playing a part when like they've had their sibling or they know that family. Like I think again it's like human nature like you start to make these associations of this is what i know about you so i'm going to make predictions based on that and i think while this is all natural like then we also start to see the impact that you know we've grown up in a highly racialized society and so we start to see the impact where people start to like for black students for example 
there's plenty of research projects out there that have demonstrated that um, educators tend to interpret the age of black students. They overestimate it by like four to five years. And so if you think about how that could play a role in how I might interpret a student's behavior, even if this student is in my fifth grade classroom and I know they are in fifth grade and I know their age, when I see them doing a behavior, I might associate it as a student four to five years older than them doing that behavior. And in which case it might very quickly turn from like a childlike behavior to something that feels really threatening. And so like how somebody might respond in that moment. Um, I think about like students with disabilities, um, students who might be speaking a different language than the educator, like how all of those things could compound um, how someone interprets the behavior. And so that's kind of how I see bias impacting the, the way that we discipline students. Um, the one that frustrates me the most is definitely, I think a lot of adults expect students to be able to behave way better than adults can even behave. Um, so almost like a lack of self-awareness, like could you sit in your seat and be quiet for eight hours? Because I can't, and it's kind of crazy that we're asking an 11 year old to do that. And it's a bit hypocritical, right? Yeah. yeah, and it's it's often, and I think it's because like, we also have these biases where we tend to look back at ourselves as like better and like good in all these lovely ways when it's like, if I really think about my 11 year old self, like how great was I? <laughs> um, would I have been capable of doing that? And so there's also like some biases around like, I think that I can do this and I'm expecting the student should be able to do that when maybe neither of those things are true. With restorative practices, ideally the way restorative practices ask us to approach discipline is a very individualized response. So like, I don't, you know, two students might steal um, something from a teacher, but those two, two students might have very different circumstances that led to that. And so that shouldn't be the same punishment for both of those students. We should actually have a conversation, talk to the teacher, bring them together, um, and figure out together what solution actually meets the teacher's needs, not just like what is the, you know, what is the handout punishment we give for theft. And so restorative practices in that regard actually should address inequities because we should be pausing and slowing down and taking the time to unpack what happened in each situation. Um, what is problematic is that people still continue to bring their biases to those conversations. And so unless you're also doing work around implicit bias and anti-racism and culturally responsive teaching and all these other pieces, um, folks might not still be cognizant of the biases they're bringing to those conversations. So, you know, maybe when I have the conversation with the white student who stole, I'm like, oh, he seemed like he felt really bad about it. So, yeah, whatever he came up with, that, that's a great solution. But maybe if I'm having the conversation with the black student, I have some biases at play and I'm like, I don't think he felt bad about it. And so I decide, like, we'll also suspend him for a day on top of what he came up with. Um, and so sometimes we see some of that at play as well, unfortunately. How about the old system in general? The, the traditional, more punitive, there's an action and then there's a consequence. Do you feel like that ever worked or is there a time and place for this? So I went to Catholic school. Um, so I grew, up, I grew up in that system. It was all guilt, shame, fear. And I would say I was like a generally pretty good kid. I think if you asked like adults who knew me at the time, they would say I was like generally a rule follower. But I think what I just got really good at was hiding. Like it was a, it wasn't that I was like, these behaviors are wrong. I just knew I would get in trouble if I got caught doing these behaviors. So I just got really good at hiding a lot of my behaviors. So I wonder if like that's what happens when we like try to go through fear route is it's just like how do I just make sure I, I'm afraid of getting caught I'm not mm -hmm. recognizing that like what I'm doing is having a negative impact on the people around me whereas restorative practices the way we approach responsibility is just like you're responsible because of the impact you had on the the community that you care about um, and I never thought about I was just afraid of getting caught when I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing that being said, like in the classroom, if they're, you know, we always say if there's an immediate safety issue, like sometimes my immediate like, response is gonna be that like coming down hard of like, no, don't do that, that is unsafe. Um, but we always wanna circle back on the back end and make sure we have that conversation about why. Why was that unsafe? Um, I always think about like the little kid that asks why so many times and like we get frustrated as adults and wanna shut it down when actually like that, what a great, that's such a good, that's the age that kids are trying to make sense of the world. So 
actually like leaning into that with discipline and explaining like this is why this rule exists this is why what you did harmed others like how much learning can happen in that space what do you critics say if to me this makes perfect sense to me <laughs> I you don't have to sell me on this like the the reason behind and like the learning experiences that people have but what are some of the most common things that people say of like why this can't work or why it shouldn't work or why we can't abandon a diff our old system and and go with something that is more restorative I think the the challenges to why we can't do this fall into a couple different buckets unfortunately right now one of the biggest buckets are just people have a misunderstanding of what restorative practices are and that goes back to that idea that these are a bless it's a blessing and a curse to be trendy there are so many people who are like training in restorative practices and saying they're doing restorative practices that there are so many misconceptions out there about what it is and so one of like the most common concerns that i would say falls into that bucket is people saying restorative practices are too soft and there's no accountability um, and typically like my response to that always, cause I have like, I've kind of tailored responses to most of these pushback over the years mm -hmm. is always, um, you're doing it wrong. Like there actually is so much accountability that comes with restorative practices. Um, we talk a lot about the social discipline window. It's like a four quadrant diagram that kind of talks about the different ways that we can, um, approach discipline. And restorative falls into this box that both has like really high level of accountability but also provides a high level of support. And so um, a lot of times people forget about the accountability part when they're first implementing restorative practices if they maybe haven't had great training. So I'll give an example of you know, what that could look like. Say I have a student who gets really upset with me in class and maybe like cusses me out. Um, the punitive approach, which is all accountability and no support, would just be like, get out. Get out of my classroom, you've disrespected me, get out. Zero tolerance. Yeah, zero tolerance. Like, I don't, I'm not standing for that, but I'm also not going to take the time to figure out what I might have done to upset you. Get out of my classroom and, like, you will go to someone else who will tell you what your punishment is and one day you will be back and we will never talk about it again. Or I'll say something like, never do that again when you come back. I think the permissive corner where you get this, like, really high support but almost no accountability would be if I, you know, I told that kid, like, that really upset me and they just went, sorry and then they do it again the next day. You know, there's no, like, there's no real accountability. Apologies are so tricky. Um, but I think ultimately, like, the apology is usually just to make the other person leave you alone and not truly because you're sorry, especially if it's just that dismissive, like, sorry, didn't mean it. Um, with the restorative approach, though, we want to have really high accountability and support. And so for that student who cussed me out, like, you know, maybe it is appropriate for them to leave the classroom. Maybe I'm actually not that escalated by it. And so they can stay in my classroom and we'll talk about it later. But we're actually going to sit down and we're going to have a conversation about like what got you to that point where you felt the need to use that language towards me and where you were that upset, where that's where you were. And then I also get to share as the educator of like how that felt for me when you said those words to me. And then together we come up with a plan of like, how are we fixing this relationship because it's not working right now? And if I really think about accountability, like that to me, having that conversation, sitting down with the person you are in conflict with and having to work it out and figure out how to make amends is holding somebody to much more accountability than sending them out of the classroom. And so I think in so many ways, we just see restorative practices done poorly in a lot of places where like they forget about the fact that like you actually need to come up with the action plan which at the end of the day is really just consequences. It's just that the student has to think of them by themselves, which is really a high form of holding people accountable. Much harder, right? Yeah, to have to like actually figure out how I'll make amends with this person I hurt versus just being told that if I like don't go to lunch one day, I've somehow made amends to this person. So I think that's a really common pushback and there's plenty of other comments that people would say that just fall into this bucket of like that misunderstanding of what restorative practices really are. I think there's also the logistical aspect of it, of this stuff takes time. Like if every time something like this happens, I need to have like a five, 10 minute conversation. Um, and those like a lot of times my response there is just, it's about prioritizing our time. Like if I, spend the 10 minutes having that conversation with that student, what are the odds they do that again? Yep. You know, and they might once, you know, it's hard to change our behavior. They might once or twice, but 
Um, I think that's a lot of the concerns and the pushback fall there as well. And then the last bucket, and this is the hardest one to respond to, is just people who really struggle because the, they, they were socialized in such a different context that they really can't even wrap their heads around this like new concept of how the world might work or how their classroom might work. Um, and so like folks will say like, I'm old school, like that's just not how I see things or you know, it really worked for me when I got punished, like that really worked for me. Um, and I don't ever, like I think that does work for some people. Um, I always just take the approach of like, but what is most likely gonna work for the most people? Because we should probably be spending more time in that strategy as well. Yeah, a couple of thoughts I had just while you're kind of responding. I, I, I think one, um, for me sometimes I will have a student that um, I know that, that the best thing to do is to like make them do some of the heavy work of yeah. figuring out what is gonna be a natural consequence for you or what can you do to repair this. And a lot of times they push back and say, just give me a suspension. Like, yeah, I, I would it's rather, easy. I would rather go home, you know, than have to like talk to this person and work mm -hmm. this out. Um, and then I think with the time factor with teachers I, or whoever staff members are, are working and, and saying like, you know, I'm balancing all these things. I don't have time to have all these conversations. And I like your response about their prioritizing. And also like just to think about that idea of um, investment, right? Like, yes, it might take time now, but what's how much time later is that going to wind up yeah. saving you? Have you ever had a, I'm going to ask you a question now, yeah. turning the tables. Great. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had to have a conversation with a student when you really messed up? Like, I can think of so many times when I was teaching, when I had to like talk to a kid and say like, I, Oh, like I when I've messed cool. up? Yeah. Like I lost my cool with you and I should not have approached you in that way. Absolutely. It takes a lot of swallowing pride to be able to get to that point. And you know, modeling that vulnerability, like you mentioned before yeah. is the key ingredient to that. I just think about, I remember every single one of those teach, those conversations I had over seven years. Like I will never forget those conversations and I've learned from them. And I think about like if students, like students are learning from these tough conversations that we, like I learned so much as an adult from having to like swallow my pride. I'll never forget I once, um, a student kept eating in my class when we had mice in my school. So they really shouldn't have been eating in class. <laughs> And he brought a donut one day and I'll never forget, I like grabbed it out of his hands and like made a dramatic thing where I like smushed it and threw it in the garbage. And I just remember like the next day having to walk up to him and be like, I cannot believe that I did that to your donut. <laughs> like, yeah. What a petty thing for an adult to do to a 14 year old. Um, but I learned so much from that. And I always think about like, that's how it felt for me. Like imagine how it feels for a kid to like, like that's where you, that's where you learn. Mm -hmm. It's in those really, I know there's so many yeah. regrets I have. <laughs> like, if I knew now what I knew then, no, if I knew then what I knew now, yeah. then I would be a very different teacher in my first couple of years because it was very much like no, no tolerance on these yeah. issues, like very black and white, um, thinking I was being as fair as possible or equitable as possible. But in retrospect, it was the least equitable thing that I could have done for my students. Yeah. I always think about like that importance of relationship in those moments, especially like almost all of those situations. I, I have always been, I was very lucky that building a rapport with students came naturally to me because I feel like in education, they talk so much about like the importance of relationships, but there aren't many places where they actually teach you how to do that. So if you are not naturally a relational person, like those are the teachers I see struggled the most. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt really lucky that building a relationship with students and particularly students that didn't look like me had very different experiences than me um, really benefited me because I it gave me the grace to mess up like that like that kid who I ripped the donut out of his hand like him and I had a great relationship so to be able to like be like man I messed up like he was laughing at me like he was <laughs> yeah, like you, you did, did mess <laughs> yeah he was so excited to hear me like swallow my pride <laughs> Um, like every time I would see him in the hallway, like when he was an upperclassman and had, was out of my class, like he'd come up and give me a hug and tell whoever he was with the story of me crushing the donut in my hands. Um, 
it's interesting that 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 situation turned into yeah. a relationship builder because that's I think how you can and should approach challenging situations in front of you of like okay this is actually an opportunity to make this relationship with this particular student actually stronger yeah or I could go the totally opposite way if I hold my ground and I do and I just like am very proud of like what the mistakes that I made and I'm not going to yeah. admit to anything that I've actually done wrong in the situation that could have the polar opposite effect. Right? Yep. Yeah, we just ended up having this like amazing inside joke about donuts for the next three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How fun. <laughs> he probably brought, brought you donuts, I'm assuming, at some point. Maybe I not. wish. I wish. <laughs> I'm going to bring that up next time I see him. Yeah, right. Um, so let's say for the people that maybe are open and willing and, and ready to sort of take on restorative practices, um, what do you? What would you say? What have you found in your experiences to be the most challenging part for people to be able to make work? Um, for people that are really wanting to to do so, but still like, what's the thing that got to make sure we're doing this? One, I think, and this is like particularly for classroom teachers. I think about this, but in some way, we almost we need to either give ourselves permission to prioritize this stuff or, you know, it's so much easier if you have a leader that gives you permission. Um, one principal that I worked with and uh, he actually was the assistant principal at a school that I taught at. And then after I left that school, he was then the principal, um, still is the principal. He always um, messaged to staff that like the time to have those restorative conversations, like when you're processing the student's behavior with them, like that is learning time. And so like, if you need to pull the kid out of like their science lab to have a quick five minute conversation with them and plug them back into their science lab, like I, I support you in doing that. That's learning time. Um, and so they're like, you know, I've had leaders like that where if they came into my classroom and we were just like simply doing relational things, like I would never worry that like you are going to, this is going to reflect poorly on an evaluation. Like you understand that there is like a lot of value to what I'm doing right now. There's learning happening. Yeah. Learning is happening. It's just like, isn't the traditional learning that you might be looking for. And so, you know, I've seen, it is lovely when an administrator gives you that permission. I've also worked in schools and for administrators that will not. And you know, like we are, there's a lot of pressure on administrators and districts around test scores and all of those pieces. And so, um, I went to this conference once and this man went to, I mean, essentially there was a question and answer with a panel about restorative practices. And he just went up to the microphone and just said, I just think a lot of people in this room need to know that you don't need permission to be restorative in your classroom. And people were like weeping and like got up and applauded. It was so moving. This like older black man and just like the response that he got just made me realize like how many people and you know I've been in these situations too like don't get that permission and like need to give it to themselves and so I think there's a lot of that of like everything in education is pushing you to this more standards based every second of class time we are maximizing learning time um, like kids can't turn and have a conversation that's unrelated to content during the 45 minute period or however long it is and so I think there's a lot of like just being willing to push back on some of those boundaries and like what is repeatedly being told to you of what makes you a good teacher. And I think like we do have that momentum of shifting of like we also want to be trauma informed. We also want to do social emotional learning, mm -hmm. but it also so much of it is just giving yourself grace to be the out of the box educator in so many ways. For schools that are thinking of trying to implement this now. Like we're in an age where it's starting to have momentum and it's kind of a trendy thing to do, like you said. What advice would you give to them? You have to go into it knowing that a lot is going to change. As a result, a colleague of mine that I worked with when I was in DPS doing this work, Denver Public Schools, she used to talk a lot about, she would use the expression of restorative lens. And I always, I just love that expression of like, you need to apply a restorative lens. And the reality is because it's not just this like curriculum, it's this way of being that you start to look at everything with that lens. And it's in some ways exhausting mm -hmm. in that way of like, now I'm looking at everything, like how we schedule students days. Like, are, is this restorative? Like, are we allowing those opportunities for them to be a human being? Or are we just like expecting them to be robots and go from one classroom to the next? Um, like I think about it as like a, just a, 
I mean, this isn't just for students, this is for staff too. And I think about it as the leader of a team, like am I making sure that I'm valuing relationships on just like my small team or in my larger office that I operate on? Um, so I think one thing you have to recognize is like, it's not just this little pocket that you're like, we're gonna do restorative practices here and then everything else will stay the same. It's gonna impact everything you do. And so you have to have this willingness to let it kind of change who you are and how you operate your school. So I would say like just that willingness and openness to change is really important. Um, I think it also, like work, work becomes more of like a passion place too when you start to implement this. You feel so connected to the people around you that like I am so lucky since I've been doing this type of work and even like the classroom level the people I worked with have become my closest friends because like you are vulnerable at work. Like you do share so much of your life and you spend so much time with those people and it opens people up in different ways. Um, some of the people that know me best in this world are the people that I've worked with in doing this work. Um, so I think that's really exciting as well. I think that it's, it's just good to know if you're gonna implement this, that it's not easy. Like this work is hard and it's challenging and it's never done and that is probably one of the hardest parts is like there's no day when you like look at your school and you say like we are now restorative and we have nothing left to do mm -hmm. it's constant um but it's also so rewarding i just like love being at schools where like you can tell tell kids are so happy to be there and you know they don't have 50 percent teacher turnover every year because like teaching's hard but people want to be part of that community and so it's so rewarding that's the other part I add on to all the hard parts about it. Yeah. I think it's rewarding because it is so hard. And yeah. And you see it work with pockets or with students, like in individual people, groups of people, it feels like, yes, this, this makes sense. Like this is coming to fruition and actually helping people. Yeah. And maybe even just that, like... There's never a right time to implement. And I think that's, a, like sometimes people wanna wait until they feel like all the conditions are right. Mm -hmm. Like there's no COVID. Yeah, like there's no COVID. There's, or you know, like more of our teachers are on board. If I could just get that one teacher who's like real set in her, her ways or set in his ways out of here, mm -hmm. like maybe then would be the time to implement. But the reality is that like implementing anything that creates that much of a paradigm shift is gonna upset people. Mm -hmm. um, and most people, most people will, come around so like you also have to be willing to upset some people because mm. it's it's upsetting when you're challenged when like the way you see the world and have always seen the world is challenged it's going to be upsetting um and there are ways to do it that are less upsetting but like you can eventually bring most people around through examples through modeling through, through modeling and just through this like basic understanding of like don't you also want to feel connected when you come to it? like so it meets this like basic human need of feeling like you're part of a community mm -hmm. one for that human connection to be seen yeah um you've seen schools that have tried to implement and been successful mm -hmm. and tried to implement and eventually abandoned like given up on it yeah what would you say, what would you name as some of the key differences between those schools? What makes a school successful versus unsuccessful with this implementation? I've also taught, like I've been the teacher in schools like that too, which has been really interesting. Um, and I also want to name that sometimes those schools are the same school. Mm. <laughs> so I've seen schools that have had like off years that have then like bounced, bounced back in future years. Um, if I didn't narrow it down to like the one thing, the most common one I see, it's schools that are restored, want to be, want teachers to be restorative with young people, but are unwilling to be restorative with teachers. So restorative practices is all about, you know, holding people accountable, but also like understanding that they're a human being and they're gonna make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so like, how can I help you fix this mistake? And then also like bring you back into this community in a really caring way. And I, you know, if you're asking teachers to do that for young people, but like I'm a teacher whose voice never feels valued here. And who, if I make one little mistake, like the way my evaluation reflects on me, like means like I might not get renewed next year. Like how, how can we expect teachers to show up in that way and be so understanding for students and some of their missteps if like teachers are then not treated as human beings? Um, so I think like that's one thing that I've seen 
there'd be a lot of difficulty. I think when people like use the practices sometimes in a really manipulative way. So for folks who are unfamiliar, one of the most common restorative practices are these like kind of restorative conversations that you would have with a student um, after they've done some behavior that negatively impacted their community. And typically you ask a series of prompts that help the student like share their perspective, recognize how it impacted others, um, take responsibility for the part they played, and then come up with a plan to fix it. And these are meant to be dialogues. Like it's meant to be a two-way conversation because the reality is that like we're trying to teach the student this, these skills that frankly a lot of adults don't have. Like I don't, and that are being like not being modeled for the students. Like how many adults right now do we see like owning their mistakes versus like didn't do it even though it's on camera somewhere. Um, and so like we're almost like going against what students are being programmed to believe in all these other facets of society. And so we need to have them with them so we can support them through the conversation. We can model some of these skills. You know, I also get to share my perspective as the educator and talk about who I think was impacted. Um, but then I'll, I'll be in a school where they've turned that into a, a worksheet. So like to, we over systematize. So like, you know, we don't have time to actually have the conversation. So now when Allison says something mean, I just give her a worksheet and send her to somebody else's room to fill it out. And then she's supposed to fill it out and come back. Um, and then so often, which this is why I just love kids so much. So often kids just write IDK, mm -hmm. I don't know, for oh. every single one. Then they get in trouble for writing, I don't know, for everyone, and they get like a detention. And it's like, oh God, what do we turn this into? When like, I don't know, has this amazing potential to be this like play, this entry point. Like you don't know what happened. Like let's walk through this. And like I think like, you know, we always say like those, those worksheets can be really valuable if it's just a space for the student to think for a minute before we have a conversation. But the second they become something that like somebody is grading or assessing or you know, I've seen schools that send them home to their parent to have them sign and like the shame that's coupled with whatever like they did to help work that out. So just like really defeating the purpose. Yeah. And I think like that in general, like this idea, I think in education and it's because we have so many things happening at once and because systems are so important in education. Like if you've ever been in a middle school that doesn't have systems, like you'll be aware very quickly of like kids need structure. <laughs> Adults need structure too, but middle school kids really need structure. But I think like there's this, this urgency to like, great, this idea sounds great. How do I turn it into a system? And sometimes we just go way too far and we actually rob it of its essence. And so I see that happen a lot, which I can only imagine how frustrating it is for that school because like they think they're doing it, but they've over systemized, systematized things to the point that they've actually like robbed it of everything that's good about it. Mm -hmm. They're not living it, they're systematizing it. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. So those are like the two, like staff who just like they don't have the capacity to care for kids because they don't feel cared for mm -hmm. um and then just that that we just rob it of its essence <laughs> um i really have to ask about about covid and how you feel that covid um sort of influences restorative practices what can what can we do um better restoratively with our inner society right now um due to our current situation. Yeah, it's interesting. I was on a call recently. So in our district, we try to partner as much as possible with the you know criminal justice system from juvenile courts at the county level and municipal level to police, um, police departments across our county. Our county's unique in some ways where, you know, I, I previously worked in Denver and there's just Denver Police Department. We have like nine or 10 municipalities across Jefferson County, which you know can be hard to navigate, all these different police departments that frequently become involved with young people. Um, but I was on a call recently, and they were kind of asking us, like, "How are you guys all holding up?" And you know, there are plenty of things to complain about right now. <laughs> with like, things are hard. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that I worry about with COVID. Like, obviously, it's it's harder to build authentic connections through technology in these remote settings. I worry just about like what school will look like in person. Like, like I think people are so, there's obviously a lot of debate about like, should schools open? Should they not? Um, and I'm so happy I'm not somebody who is responsible for making that decision and I will just follow whatever decision is made. But I think um, 
one aspect of schools opening that people aren't talking about is like what they will actually look like when they do of like like to monitor kids being six feet apart from each other at all time like it, it almost feels like if they come in person really what they're doing is just remote learning while sitting in their school building but like not being able to collaborate or you know, I think about like little kids who like need a hug from their teacher sometimes when they're scared and like they're not gonna get a hug from their teacher. Older kids, like there are kids I used to be like, you need a hug right now, I taught high school and sometimes they need a hug too. Um, so I think like there are obvious challenges there. But at the same time, like in, when these this group of folks asked, like everyone from education was real quick to list off challenges. And what I tried to lift up is there's also like a lot of opportunity here um one in that like it's calling attentions to things that people were ignoring before or just like weren't really sure about and one of those being like the just vast inequities and opportunities for kids across um cultural lines socioeconomic lines and so i think there's a lot of opportunity there to really like help bring some attention to some of those inequities um i also have noticed schools who never prioritized relationships before, prioritizing relationships now. Um, teachers who I've worked with before who haven't like re relationships hasn't been something that's important to them, which a lot of times is because teachers like are actually naturally good at that and don't realize that like you actually relationships are actually very important to you. They just come so easy to you that you don't realize you have to focus on it. Mm -hmm. um, and even just like the way that we address behavior. So, you know, if a kid is required to physically be present in this building every day I'm a little less worried about like when I like say something rude to you or send you out on a suspension like you're going to come back because you have to but like if I discipline a student who is just like sitting at home and logging into remote learning and it's in this way that really damages our relationship what's to say that kid's going to log back in tomorrow um, so I think in so many ways we're also seeing this increased opportunity to have some of those conversations with folks about know why it's so important to have those relationships and I am all I love getting like creative like I, I almost crave obstacles in that way sometimes like our team had a lot of fun coming up with like all the different ways you can build community with a kid one-on-one -on -one or in a big group like or how you could build a community among staff um, with these extra barriers in place um, and as much as like there's definitely a challenge to it like there are came up with a pretty long list like of all these different ways you could connect and one of my one thing i'm seeing i think teachers are having a lot more one-on-one -on -one conversations with kids than they ever did before i have this story that i tell a lot when i'm training educators and it's specifically about this principal i had um when i was teaching in chicago and she was new to our school and she the year before her tenure started at our school she came out one of the last weeks of school and every day just picked a random kid in the hallway just gave him a heads up like hey i'm gonna follow you for the day i'm not following you for any reason other than i just want to see what what a day at school is like from your perspective and something that really stuck with me is she shared with us the following year that um i think it was three of the students that she followed were never once asked to participate in class so i just the fact that a student could visit i think we had six, sometimes eight classes in a day at that school, and that a single adult didn't elicit a response from them, it really sat with me. And I think a lot about how many kids fly under the radar at school. Like we have the student who is an eager participant and, you know, is raising their hand and wants to be like called on and asked to share their opinion. Um, and then you have the student who's a behavior concern. And so like they might get a lot of attention in that way. Um, and might also be like engaged in, the teacher might be using strategies of engaging in them in learning to kind of mitigate some of those behaviors. But how many of our students who maybe are a little more introverted or just like quiet or have figured out how to play the game of school that make it through an entire day without ever actively talking about what it is that they're learning. Um, and so I think in some ways, COVID is forcing us to have more of these one-on-one -on -one conversations with students reaching out to that kid that didn't see him engaged or had their camera off and like, I want to know and make sure that you understand where you're at. And I think it just highlights another way that this in so many ways is also an opportunity um, for us to really rethink how we're, how students are learning. 
I love your silver lining. I love the positive <laughs> outlook on, you know, a very challenging situation. And like, instead of just naming the challenges, I, you being proactive and thinking about the potentials of increasing those relationships uh, through this one-on-one -on -one time, I think is, is great to see that there are solutions out there for our current situation. Allison, what has been your best failure? I think just from the direction this conversation has taken, it's so easy to think about all those individual moments I had with students that I just so regret and what I learned from them in the conversations that happened afterwards. Um, but if I'm being honest about my biggest failure, I would say it was the when I left the classroom. Um, and I know, like you said, best failure. And like there are so many pieces of that that have led to where I am today. And I'm really grateful for that experience. But ultimately, I feel like every teacher has this school, this like teacher at a school. Um, I said that wrong. I feel like every school has that teacher um, that you just feel like has been doing this for too long. And sometimes it's somebody who has only been teaching for like three years or four years or a couple months where you're like, you've been doing this too long. And sometimes it's somebody that's been, you know, that veteran teacher that has been there for 30 plus years. And it's that person who's jaded and just like doesn't seem to care about the kids anymore um, or like anything that comes down from administration, no matter what it is, they're upset about it. Um, and I just always saw those teachers and was like, I hope I have the guts to leave teaching before I become that person. And I think I let a momentary like lapse in hope convince me that I'd become that teacher. And I think I might've left too soon. Um, in so many ways, when I look back on my classroom, there are so many ways where I was really good at what I did. And I just needed to get better at maybe ignoring some of the things that were happening around me and just focus on my classroom and really try to um, create like a caring and like curious environment for my students. And I wonder if I had just like stuck it out a little longer, if I would have had like a rebound of hope, like I can affect change in my classroom. Um, I can find these sneaky ways to like navigate the rules and also do things that challenge the rules. Um, so ultimately, I think that is probably my, my best and biggest failure. We don't know what that path might have taken had you chosen, but I feel like we are very lucky that you chose that path because it has led you here to the situation in Jeffco, and we really need you here in Jeffco. Well, I appreciate that very much. I'm not going to lie, like when budgets were uncertain and I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do if, you know, the Colorado State Legislature decides not to approve my grant? In the back of my mind, I was like, I could go back to the classroom and there was a little excitement there. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a lot of days I miss it too. Yeah. Allison, I, I unfortunately only have one more question for you. I'd love to keep talking. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk offline quite a bit or maybe we'll have you back on someday. Um, but my last question for you for today is what advice do you have for potential or, or current humble badass educators out there? So probably one of my shining moments from teaching, this was like the most validating and affirming experience I ever had was when a group of students, like one class of students in particular, who I had just because I rotated what subject I taught so often um, within social studies, I had taught some of them like three of their four years of high school, um, but they voted me to be the class speaker at their graduation. Like probably one of the biggest compliments I ever could have gotten from my students. I, rem I think I started the speech by saying, I'm shocked that some of you still haven't heard enough of me. Like, I am a talker and <laughs> was always a talker as a teacher. And I was just like, I just can't believe you wanted me to say more. Um, but the advice I would give to aspiring humble badasses is the same advice I gave to just a couple hundred 18 year olds um, who are graduating high school. And that is just like the importance of challenging the rules and boundaries. Um, you know, high school in particular does this to us, but I think as professionals in education and professionals in so many places, people really try to get you to like, just like follow the rules, stay in these like certain lanes and things will never change if everyone does that. And so we need people who are pushing some of those boundaries. And the way I framed it to the students and 
I think it's important is it needs to be intentional. Like I'm not just talking about like recklessness for the sake of being reckless, but really understanding those moments where it's like, this is a time where I actually should not be following this guideline or working within these boundaries. This is a time to really challenge that. And for me, a lot of times what that looks like is being really strategic about when I ask for permission and when I ask for forgiveness. Um, and you know, like, you know, 95% of the time I'm going to ask for permission before I do something. Um, but those 5% of the time when it's something that really matters to me, being willing to say like, I'm just going to do it because I think it's right. And I believe in it. And you know, so often when I'm making that choice, it's because I also believe that when people see me do it, they actually won't be upset because it'll like, it'll actually be effective and people will be like, well, I'm glad you just kind of ran with that. Um, so we need, we need people like that, people who are pushing boundaries and intentionally thinking outside the box. Well, you're already causing me to start to think about all of the things that I could potentially do better to push the boundaries and break the rules. And what are those things that I want to do that for? Um, Allison, thank you so much for your time. It has been awesome talking with you today. Um, and we, again, are so lucky that you are guiding us in the right direction towards restorative practices in Jefferson County. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.